Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. Please welcome the team of the Fulhamish Podcast. the Fulhamish podcast, your independent voice of Fulham FC. My name's Sammy James. Welcome to the show. Today, we'll be looking ahead to Saturday's game against Aston Villa at Craven Cottage. Two Saturday 3pm kickoffs in a row. What lucky, lucky people we are. I'm joined on the Thursday Club today by Jack Collins. Hello. Hello, mate. How you doing? Good, thank you. Um, good to see your face in the studio again. It's nice. Nice to be back. Having a nice time in here. Studio getting better and better every week. There's plants in here and all sorts now. It's very exciting. Yeah, our, our new little studio's um, fun. We're, we're enjoying recording back in uh, in person. We've had you know, three or four years of pretty much doing all podcasts remotely. So it's a nice change to try and meet up and do as many in person as we can. Hope I think they're better. Yeah. I really do. I think there's more of an element of, of chatting away. And obviously you can do bits of both. We had Peter on remote last week and yeah. the two of us in here, which was a bit different. But been joyful yeah no um, i hope you guys uh, listening are uh, noticing uh the improvement hopefully or um maybe you think it's worse who knows um <laughs> but anyway uh thank you for listening to, for, to the show today so as i mentioned we'll look ahead to villa we'll also do a bit of a final words um on saturday's win over bournemouth we'll look back a little bit at the afcon final obviously a really difficult evening for alex and calvin uh, in the in Ivory Coast as uh, as they lost. We'll also answer some of your emails at the end. Um, but Jack, we should talk about uh, the 3-1 win over Bournemouth quickly. Um, I know that George and Co did a fantastic job of rounding it all up on, on Sunday's podcast, but it was just such a enjoyable afternoon. I think the fact that it was just kind of felt like one of those routine ones. It felt a bit like a championship game in some ways. We went to the cottage, we scored early. We saw the game out. There was a bit of drama to the game. It certainly wasn't all a walk in the park by any stretch of the imaginations, but we went home. We were last on match of the day and we're probably going to stay up. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that if you'd offered us five points from Burnley, Everton and Bournemouth, would you have taken it? It probably would have been the minimum I'd have wanted. Yeah, I agree. Because I think the two points from Burnley and Everton didn't feel like enough, but I was concerned about this Bournemouth game. Yeah. And the way it played out, I thought, was in some ways really, really impressive from Fulham. Now, lots of people will look at this and say, look at the ability that Bournemouth had to create chances, but you look back at it and also think, well, how many big saves did Burn Leno make? And they didn't force the issue. And it's not the first time this happened for Bournemouth where they've created a lot of chances and got very little actual shots on target, but also worked the opposition goalkeeper in, in that regard. So it was an interesting game, I thought. And and the way that it developed, and obviously when Bournemouth scored just after half time, you're thinking, here we go again. Oh, I was fully convinced it was 3-2 Bournemouth when and that happened. Here we go again. We've just seen this happen against Burnley where we've thrown away a two-goal lead and Fulham literally go straight down the other end and score again. And I'm sure we'll come on to Rodrigo Muniz and his brilliant, brilliant game, I think. But I wanted to just give a shout out to Tim Ream because mm. I thought he marshaled Dominic Solanke, who everyone's been raving about <laughs> brilliantly. And I thought Solanke was completely and utterly marked out of the game. There were moments where Ream was nipping around him to get the ball and, and take it off his feet. 
He won very few aerial... Well, he won some aerial duels, but not to anyone. So whenever Fulham dropped off and allowed Solanke to flick the ball on, it was like there was someone ready to clean up behind him. I thought we marshaled one of the informed players in the Premier League incredibly well. And given his scoring record against us, mm. that takes some doing. So yeah, shouts out to Tim Ream. Shouts out to this Fulham team. Well, it was also Tim Ream that set us on the way for the first goal. Now, no one could have counted on Lewis Cook slipping as he did, but it was <laughs> <laughs> it was Tim Ream's header that uh, that kind of got that goal going. And it was Rodrigo Muniz's brilliant play as well. Like again, held it up and and just did a job all day I mean coming it's on it's a dreadful pass <laughs> we just should be clear into the into the middle yeah but he does brilliantly to get there his work rate's phenomenal it always is right and that's something that we he just never put it into an area he just whacked it into the middle and if that had been cleared everyone would be like what are you doing but obviously Cook falls over and Bobby's there to tidy up as usual the one player you want that to fall to right mm. you want that ball falling to Bobby Deckard over Reed and he slots it away with a plomb so yes a little bit of luck but I thought we earned it with the way that we started. And that fast start from Fulham was nice to see because we have been a little bit sluggish out of the blocks at certain points this season. Yeah. And, and actually, it was 2-0 at the break. Could have quite easily been 3 or 4. Willian's, I mean, it's actually a really good save from Neto, isn't yeah. it? But he should do better with that chance. There was other moments for Fulham. And Bournemouth, it felt like they were really dangerous. That whole game, I was like panicked about what Bournemouth could do. Really, Sinistera forcing a save out of Leno in the first half was was probably the closest they came. There was a few ones where they should have done better, as you mentioned. Yeah. But it was weird. Like I almost came out of the game feeling like quite stressed because it felt like at times like Bournemouth were all over us. But actually, when you break it down, especially as if you watch this game just on highlights, you'd have thought that Fulham were absolutely dominant throughout. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. Bournemouth created more chances. How many high quality chances did they create? And the exact opposite of Fulham. And look, we've been in that position. Mm. This is not something that Fulham fans will be averse to, I suppose, or, or at least, at the very least, will be something that they're not you know, used to seeing. We've had games this season where we've created chance after chance after chance and not work the opposition goalkeeper. The Newcastle game in the FA Cup springs to mind immediately, right? Where you're the better team and you make things happen, but you actually don't create anything of note and you get undone by a team who just have a little bit more of that clinical edge in you. And that's what it felt like. And look, I don't think there's those between these two teams. I think this Bournemouth side are a bit younger yeah. than us and have, a, have room to grow. Whereas I think that Fulham still need to invest in that, you know, and I'm banging on this drum again, but into, into a younger looking squad if we're going to maintain this position. But considering the amount of praise that Bournemouth have got in recent weeks, for Fulham to be around and about in the same place, I think is probably a symbol of, Maybe we were all panicking a tad too much. And that very much includes me. I, yeah. I was wary and I did think that those two, you know, if you look at them as dropped points against Burnley and Everton, you can maybe look at them as two drop points. You can maybe look at them as four. But either way, you've got to look at that and go, please don't let that be the thing that drags us in to the relegation scrap. And there was a really interesting article, I thought, on, on Football 365, which you know has its ups and downs in terms of where it is with Fulham. But it was like, this was a display in some ways which showed why we won those two games 5-0. Because of the amount of high quality chances that Fulham did create in these areas. And actually you look back at it and go, well, this Fulham side are capable of almost playing anybody. And I don't think we showed that against Liverpool in the Cup. Yeah. But on our day, this Fulham side is capable of magic. It's just that that day isn't always going to come around because of the makeup of the squad. But now going into this incredibly difficult run of fixtures that we have coming up, with Awobi and Bassi coming back. And I said this to Dean at half time. I was like, if we win this game, I reckon we get, maybe it might only be a point, but I reckon we get something out of the next couple of games. If we lose this game, there's absolutely no chance we pick up anything because morale, morale's down. And look, we'll come on to AFCON and what happened with Awobi and also some of the fallout afterwards. But I do think that them coming back into the side now, Awobi and, and Bassi, and that competition for places, obviously we saw Wilson back as well there's suddenly a little bit more depth you're looking at and going, yeah. oh, that's a relief. All of that now comes to a point where you're like, oh, if Fulham are safe also, maybe we can have a go and not be concerned about trying to keep teams out. Maybe we can have a go at Villa who are tearing this weekend and see what we can do at the cottage. And I think that's a nicer place to be, a far nicer place to be. And it's amazing the difference that three points can make. Well, I, we've talked about this sometimes. I remember start of last season, Fulham drew the first two games and it was kind of like right well that third Brentford game lose it and it's a winless start win it it's an unbeaten start yeah, three, and it's, it's three unbeaten here right yeah and that was kind of what Saturday did 
I mean, kind of draw it and then, oh, we'll draw specialists, lose it. And it's like, oh, we haven't won in ages. Win it. Now everyone's like, oh. Three unbeaten. Three unbeaten. Yeah. It, it all feels a lot more positive. Um, let's discuss um, Alex Wobie and Calvin Bassey. Um, they had an amazing run to the Africa Cup of Nations final. Did feel a little bit like the narrative certainly was against them in on, on Sunday. Because oh, yeah. I think everyone was kind of siding with any neutral maybe was siding with Ivory Coast given... I was actually out in my Nigeria shirt having a time. <laughs> JJ Okocha, well, big Alex's uncle on the back. I wanted Nigeria to win for the boys, but also at the same time, you, couldn't, story, yeah. you couldn't help but get caught up in the emotion of Alec scoring the winner after coming back from testicular cancer. Yeah. The fact they were the hosts, the fact that they basically should have gone out of AFCON in the group, in the group stage. stage. Yeah. And they, were only, they only game stayed in because of Mozambique. Uh, it was just an amazing story. Um, it's been particularly tough in the aftermath of the defeat for Alex Awobi. Um, he's been basically forced to delete his Instagram. Um, he did a chat with, I think like Nigeria's interior minister where he sounded, I wouldn't, I verge of tears is maybe a bit strong, but he, he seems definitely emotional. Yeah. He was dejected. And I don't think just because of what happened on the pitch, I think the reaction from Nigerian supporters towards him has been, very, I mean, I think a witch hunt is not the like most hor- like outrageous term, thing yeah. to say. Calvin's had it a little bit less. And I think that Calvin was one of the few players to come out of that final with some credit for Nigeria because he was immense, I thought. Yeah. I think it's personally a bit harsh on Alex. I don't think he, I just thought he was as bad as the rest of them. Yeah, I was going to say like, it, it wasn't, Awobi did have a bad game, don't get me wrong. And there was very little creativity in the midfield. And when that happens, obviously when you're playing next to a player like Onyeka, who does put himself about and throw himself into challenges, maybe it does look like you're the weak link in the midfield. But Samu Chukweze on the left-hand side was dreadful. Adamola Lookman barely got a kick. And Victor Osimhen did not very little. I mean, he was given no service, so he should be given some leeway in that regard. But I didn't think that you looked at that game and went, Awobi is the problem here. And considering his performances throughout the tournament, like, to be honest, Nigeria, almost to a man, as you say, were pretty dreadful. The game plan was a mess from the manager. I have no idea what they were trying to achieve, given the dominance that we've seen from them in, in quarters of this tournament. So to pin it on a Wobi feels incredibly strange in some ways. Now, there has been this cultural significance of Awobi sort of being the first of what they call the Init Boys, which is the South London crew who have sort of become ingratiated within this Nigeria camp. And he was saying about it, Carla Keme and Balogun. There were there have been other players from different areas who have you know emerged into the Nigeria squad. But there has been a cultural touch point that's been discussed over the course of the tournament. But to lay that at Awobi's door feels incredibly unjust because as you say he very much he didn't have a good final and no one is suggesting that he did but he very much wasn't the only player on the park who wasn't able to influence things in a positive way for Nigeria yeah I mean it just felt like a tertiary performance and to be honest I felt like Nigeria got away with it a little bit against South Africa as well no I actually disagree I thought they were far the better side against South Africa by a long long way but they very very nearly lost it yes they very nearly lost it in the last minute but that wouldn't if if that had if that happened it would have been a smash and grab Mm. whereas I think you look at the Ivory Coast game and you go the better team won by a distance if Nigeria had lost in the semi-final you would have said the better team lost over the course of the 90 minute spell Absolutely no doubt about it whatsoever. Yeah, although it felt like as the game went on, Nigeria just like wilted a, a little bit, maybe because South Africa realised at that point there was nothing to lose yeah, by, yeah, by going that, for that's it. that's fine. I think what happened, the thing that's kind of damning about this Nigeria performance in particular was that when they went 2-1 down with, what, seven, eight minutes to play plus injury time, you're kind of expecting a response. It was horrendous. And it? it was flat. It was like, oh, we've lost. Hang on, lads, this is AFCON final. And look, some of the changes and some of the personnel on the pitch at that point didn't really make any sense. And I think that there's a reason that the second goal comes down that right-hand side after Iheanacho comes on to play there, doesn't do any defensive tracking, leaves Aina, who was being skinned by, you know, talking of excellent players, skinned by Adingra absolutely all night. But suddenly he's one-on-one, not two-on-one, because Mm. there was at least tracking coming back from, from Chikwe, is it? So actually, you look at the way that it panned out and you're thinking... Well, I can see why this has happened. But the lack of a response, the kind of 
lack of any ambition from Nigeria to get back into the game felt very strange. Very, by, very. By strange. which point, Awobi was not on the pitch yeah, he anymore. Was gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and also, and rightly so, he was taken off because he was poor, and that's okay. But and and we talk about this, and you're like, you can't put that at Alex Awobi's door, and. You know, the players that came on hardly impacted proceedings either. Joe Aribo came on for Awobi and didn't do very much. Yeah. You know, you're not talking about someone who's come on and had a storm the last 10 minutes and then suddenly you're like, oh, he should have started. It just all feels, as you say, a little bit like a witch hunt and I'm not quite sure why. I mean, I look, <clears throat> as an England fan, like we have been just as guilty of this with our international teams um, towards, uh, I mean, worse. Don't I mean, me. No, I know. I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm, I just, I, before maybe a Nigeria fan listens to this and thinks, oh, bloody English boys, like having a pop at Nigeria. England did it worse in the Euros final, the way that we hounded Bukayo Saka. Well, I, I'd, I would like we, to- You do we loosely there. Right? Yeah, as in some England fans, you know, abused him for not even having a bad game, just missing a penalty yeah. um, in a penalty shootout. Like this happens in international tournaments. Emotions run far too high and people can't control their emotions. And and it is part and parcel, sadly, of playing on the biggest stage is that the highs are great. The lows can be really low. desperately low. I guess what coming on to more of a Fulham point of view, I just think personally as Fulham fans... We have to show those boys so much love on Saturday. Yeah. Like we really have to remind them that, look, Saturday, that Sunday must have been one of the toughest days of your lives. But back here at Fulham, we massively appreciate both those both these players. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's important to, to demonstrate that love at the weekend. I doubt either of them start. To be perfectly honest with you, I don't yeah. think I them go straight back into the team, given the emotional turmoil that's been going on. Plus, Which might actually give us more of a chance to give them reception because... As they come down to warm, warm up. They'll warm up. I was thinking exactly the same. You know, and I think that's really important at the weekend. It's about showing them that, you know, in, in this cradle, there is love. And look, that's not, an, that's not an attack, by the way. I can understand that emotions run high. I think some of the reaction has been completely over the top and unjustified. But I'm not saying that there is not love for players in various quarters and especially in, in, in Nigeria. But I do think it's important now to just be like, oh, we understand what's gone on here. We need just a little bit of looking after to make sure that, you know, everyone feels you're not going to turn that around. You're not going to suddenly undo the pain of what's gone on in the last couple of weeks, you know, in one reception. But you can just show that there's support there. And I think that's important this weekend. And we've missed them massively as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, I honestly believe, do I believe this? I don't know if I've convinced myself, but I've slightly convinced myself that Fulham might be in a Carabao Cup final if we'd have had them both. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to caveat that with Mohamed Salah would have probably played. Yeah, but I I, I think I've come around to actually, if you gave me that choice again. Yeah, I would take it too, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's a guarantee. I think it was a a way bigger loss for us than it was for Liverpool losing Mohamed Salah, given the attacking riches they had and the lack of, and I just felt like we were a player or two off doing something special in that semi-final. Yeah, no, that's fine. fine. I don't think it's a guarantee, but I think it's very much would be up in the air. And if you gave, I mean, you gave me the opportunity to replay it with them or without them, I would take with them as well. I would yeah. take a, you know, a, a squad. But, but that's it. And these international tournaments are the most important things to many players' careers. Yeah, I totally uh, understand. No, 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 going. I know you're not attacking it, but it is worth re-pointing that out when people are like, well, maybe they shouldn't have gone. That's not what I'm getting at here whatsoever. It's, you know, these are huge, crucial tournaments and representing your country on the biggest stage is one of the most incredible things I think that you can imagine doing ever. Yeah. So... So, you know, there's not in any way, shape or form suggesting that they shouldn't have have gone because that is not what I'm getting at. No, and actually, I must admit, this is one of the first AFCONs that I've watched quite a lot of it. Welcome to the club, I know, I know, I know (laughs) that you've been banging this drum for years, but you felt the enormity on Sunday. I guess, Uh, especially as it was two, you know, football colossuses colliding. definitely, definitely. And, And look, these two have played out some of the most interesting ties we've seen in Afghan, right? These are these are two nations that have brought us some of the best games and best late tournament games that we've seen in a long time. So to see them come up against each other in a, in a, in a final was really cool. I think Nigeria bottled it, but that's a separate point. And, you know, we got an ending rich in narrative that a tournament that has been so rich in drama and narrative really deserved in, in many yeah. ways. I, I must admit my, my love for the Asian Cup's not fully there yet. It's, it's, I actually think it's suffered for being on at the same time. 
Now, we're going to have this same problem, I think, in the summer. Well, maybe some people aren't, but I'm going to have the same problem in the summer when the Copper America and the Euros are both on at the same time. Trying to keep an eye on both tournaments is difficult. Thankfully, the time zones worked a little bit easier yeah. for the Asian Cup. But the Asian Cup knockouts were as dramatic, if not more so, than AFCON. And there was, I saw someone describe it as more AFCON than AFCON, which I thought was <laughs> incredibly interesting. The group stages were less fun. But, you know, it's it's been an amazing month of football, I think, over the course of the international stage. And you know, worth remembering how how fun and inspirational these tournaments can be. Yeah. Speaking of um, Euros and, and Copper, I was looking at um, some of the teams in the Euros. We're going to have very little representation at the European Championships. Oh, Fulham. I was like, sorry. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's not, it's I mean, not like this. It's, it's basically on Wales to qualify. I mean, you'll have Xiao Polina obviously playing yeah, for uh, for Portugal. You might have... I'll be there in my Portugal shirt. <laughs> you might have Leno, third choice for Germany at best. Marek Rodak might be second choice for Slovakia. And then it's basically on whether Wales can qualify through the playoffs. But yeah. I'm normally expecting a little bit more Fulham representation at a major tournament. Look at half a Breuer. He'll have obviously left, you'd imagine, yeah. at that point. But if he's played for us for the previous couple of months, you're expecting a little bit from there. Yeah. But I mean, this is part of But then of Copper the... America, bit yeah, I was a lot say, more. Yeah, because this is part of the, the kind of level of what you got. And Fulham have built a team that has a very, as we've said, Lucifone flavour. And a lot of that is Brazilian. Now, do I think that Fulham's Brazilian coherent or contingent are going to get into this Brazil squad? Probably not. No. But I do think it's interesting that when you build a squad like this, it means that there is obviously a diluted element of of what's going to happen at European Championships. And now we've kind of lost our... Serbian edge and you imagine that Lukic might leave in the summer as well oh he might play he'll be he, Sasha he will be there but he might not be a Fulham player by that point or yeah. at least be on the way out then you're kind of like oh it's, it's less and less and we've lost and you know a little pocket that we had there of, of Serbian influence that used to be part of things but Copper America you got Tim and Anthony yeah Bobby for Jamaica yeah. and uh, and Raul for uh, for Mexico. So maybe we should all have eyes on the uh, on the Copper America. Maybe we will. Maybe yeah. we will. Right, we'll take a break there. We've yappled on a little bit more than I expected about uh, international football, and we'll look ahead to Saturday's game against Villa. Part two of the Fulhamish podcast. Sammy here with Jack Collins. Thank you very much to Green King Sport for continuing to be our partner for the 23-24 season. Green King pubs are where you can watch every single televised Premier League or just generally any sporting match that you want to uh, this season. As we joked about last week, Fulham aren't on the box very much at the moment, but there are still some good games that you could go catch this weekend. On Saturday, if you want to get, if you want to watch um, our two close rivals Brentford and Chelsea get to get their asses handed to them by Liverpool and Man City that's probably uh, the best place to start in the 12.30 and uh, 5.30 games so if you're at a loose end on Saturday maybe not at the cottage then uh, head to a Green King Sport pub and you can watch all the football there indeed indeed should be a good weekend for Villa. yeah uh, hopefully we can uh, yeah uh, get three points while watching uh, watching our rivals also Luton Man United on uh, Sunday at 4.30 feels I don't know. I'm, I'm definitely watching that one. Just feels like keep an eye on it. I just, I, just, I mean, I, I did my Super Six predictions earlier, and this isn't a spawn. Um, I definitely went one nil Luton. <laughs> I'm going to be knee deep in La Liga by that point. So uh, it's just got one nil Luton written all yeah, over it, does, it that game, it? doesn't it? Uh, right. Let's look ahead to Villa on Saturday, as we spoke about three p.m. on Saturday, um, and. I don't know. I mean, a few weeks ago, I'd have looked at this and been like pretty much certain loss. Villa were title chasing. Now it feels a little bit more like Villa are just going to be fighting to keep their top four spot. Um, it's been a bad run of form for Unai Emery's side. They kind of lost the magic touch at Villa Park. Obviously, this is at Craven Cottage. They haven't actually been that amazing on the road this season. But if anything, in the last few weeks it's their on the road form that's uh that's saving them last time out they they thrashed Sheffield United uh 5-0 which obviously comes with the caveat that it's Sheffield United um I guess I'm pleased that we're facing Villa at what appears to be a good time I'm always wary of the backlash though yeah I would have preferred it if it was last week because Pau Torres I think will be back and the difference in the way that Villa play with Torres in and out of the team is pretty stark to be perfectly honest with you the 
he might not be the best defender in the world, and I don't think he is, and I think that there is a scope to maybe get at him in that regard. But I do think that Villa, when he's the one controlling the play out from the back, become immediately a much better side, a much more potent side in their attacking senses and his ability to, you know, go short, go long, to mix things up and actually keep them ticking along when they do have the ball is pretty spectacular. I loved him at Villarreal. He does have defensive, you know, weaknesses. There, There's no doubt about that. Physically, I think you can get the better of Pau Torres, but on the ball, there are not many centre-backs in the world, I think, who have a better grasp of how the game is played and he is the rock and I've used this phrase before but the rock on which Emery has built his church at Villa Park yeah um obviously Villa won't have Bubakar Kamara um he's out for the rest of the yeah, season that was actually very sad yeah I, I was gonna say not not certainly not one miss the Euros as well yeah to to celebrate because it was a really horrible injury um but he's been a really important player for them in the middle of the park and I, I do feel like when we went to Villa Park earlier in the season we lost that midfield battle so badly um so maybe that gives us a little bit more of a chance of of of, of competing with what is a very talented kind of mid, Villa midfield yeah, I'm going to be interested to see what Emery does here because he's sort of played this 4-2-2-2 system mm. for, for long periods and it's involved Kamara and Douglas Louise at the base, which is, well, is something that's been pretty much rock solid throughout the season. And then further up, it's been McGinn and of late, Yuri Tielemon, who's worked his way into this side and become quite an important piece. So what he does here in terms of who comes into the side or who drops backwards, whether that is McGinn and... McGinn did a brilliant job, obviously, of, of working against Rapalina at, at Villa Park. Mm. And I thought that he was maybe the fulcrum on which the game turned. Um, because as soon as JP couldn't find himself in the game, we got overrun. And so if he drops back into that midfield or if it's Yelamont, then maybe that changes the dynamic of how Fulham approached this as well. So, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be intrigued. And, and I think that's a big miss for them. Um, they've got a couple of big players out at the moment. And we've seen... This squad stretched a little bit in terms of what it looks like. I think Consa might be out as well, which might mean Matty Cash plays. Can you get a Matty Cash a bit more than you can get Esri Consa at right back? Yes, I think you can. Uh, and I think that, you know, we talked about the fact that Adam Smith on the left-hand side of Bournemouth's defence last week looked a bit like a point that Fulham could try and attack. You'd think the same about Matty Cash. Can we get him behind there? Can Willian start to torment him a little bit? And can Anthony Robinson play the way that, he, you know, we know he can when he's getting over and past a... Uh, passed the right back to to show Fulham down that side. So yeah, I, I think it's going to be an, an interesting one. And as you say, does feel like if we'd seen this game a couple of weeks ago and before the Bournemouth result, maybe it looks like a, oh, that could be uncomfortable. But it's still good because Bournemouth, Villa are a very, very good side and they have the capacity, as you say, to backlash, to turn this on if they decide to play with actual wingers and actually go with a front three that involves maybe Watkins, Bailey and Diaby, mm. then that's an incredibly potent weapon that they can utilise. If it's not that, then maybe Fulham can take advantage. Yeah, Leon Bailey is is such a good player. He actually new signed, contract. Yeah, yeah, signed a new contract. I think he's, uh, I think he might be one assist off 10 and 10 uh, this year. So I think that just shows how vital he's been to, uh, to Villa. And obviously our old friend, Ollie Watkins, uh, back at the cottage. Um, he scored against us at, at we get a better Park. reception at the cottage than he will at uh, Brentford. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's completely burnt his bridges there. I forgot about that. What a weird little move that, uh, that he did, uh, in that game. So yeah, I think that the defense will have their work cut out. Speaking of, I think this is the first time in a few weeks that we can try and predict the lineup and it's not 100% set in stone because I think that now Marcus Silva has quite a few chess pieces um, return. We obviously saw the return of uh, Harry Wilson and Adama Traore to the squad. He's real. <laughs> he, like, unreal. It was, I was very excited. Uh, they mentioned it on the uh, the Sunday podcast, but the left-hand side of Anthony Robertson, Foda Balatori and Adama Traore one of the most vibes things I've ever seen at Craven Cottage. It was just delicious. Um, I did enjoy that Adama's cameo was basically passing the ball out of play, losing the ball, getting bodied, bodying someone in return. And then just sort of, we didn't utilize any of the get the ball over the top and let him run it. I was like, what are we doing? Maybe we didn't want to like him to strain his calf again by I, running. I can't remember which 
um, Bournemouth player it was who he basically just scared by knocking. I think it was Lewis Cook. Like, oh, it might have been. It might have been Adam Smith. To be honest, it might. Have been. Adam Smith just had the ball, and I, he genuinely just heard Adama Traore's footsteps coming behind Ran him and just spanked out into play because he just was terrified that the tank was just going to mow him over. Um, anyway, also obviously Awobi and Bassi back. As you mentioned, you think it's going to be a bit soon for them, but maybe I- Bassi. Maybe Bassi, but I definitely think that he won't start a Wobi here. Okay, a Wobi I agree on. It feels like you might as well just bring a Wobi off the bench. But the Bassi question is interesting because Tim Ream's done nothing to lose his spots, but Calvin Bassi was the clear first choice before he left for Afcon. Does Marco Silva see this as a case of you went to Afcon, mate? You're going to have to wing it back, or does he think you're my best left centre back? Back in you come. I also think you probably have to consider the opposition because if it is Watkins and Diaby up top, at the pace in behind on those two in particular is pretty remarkable. So maybe that's a case for Vassi to just be able to utilise a little bit more of that quickness that he has ahead of, of Tim Ream. But generally, I, I agree with you. I thought Ream was, as I said at the top, excellent and marshalling Solanke last weekend. Um, did a really good job against one of the most informed players in the Premier League. Whether that changes or not when when Bassi's here, I'm, I'm not quite sure yet. But they're two sides of a coin, I think, that you can consider at the very least. I, I've feeling that he'll go with Ream. Yeah, I actually that's this is tough, t- um, you know, toss, toss of a coin. coin for me really because I can't quite work out what he'll do here. Like part of me thinks Marco is loyal, but sometimes when he gets the opportunity to do something, he will be reasonably ruthless with it. I would be looking at that pace in behind. If it was one of them and a big striker, I think maybe he'd go with that. That's the only tricky bit because both of them are so quick and so explosive. I can see him going, well, it doesn't matter which side they're on. We're going to have problems both ways. And that might be the argument for Bassi. Yeah. Interesting what's happened with Tosin as well. Cause I thought that Marco had said he was, um, he was fit to play against Bournemouth and then he wasn't in the squad. Yeah, maybe just they felt something on Friday or whatever, you know, yeah. in the afternoon. It, it can change, obviously, quite late on with, with things like that. He could have been fit was, and firing to, on yeah, Friday morning. Not being and, the squad at all, I thought, was what was interesting for me with Tosin. I was I was expecting maybe him on the bench. Well, but... I was going to I, I was gonna say, and I was going to say this last week, I think either he starts or he's out. And it's like, mm-hmm. I didn't think he would be on the bench. Because I think that if you are going to put him on the bench, it's almost like a what's the point. Mm. Like There is a level there that you can be like, well, we could probably make do in a pinch. And if he's going to need an extra week to recover and if we don't have to put him through the rigmarole of a match day campaign and he can spend that time, you know, with the physios or just resting in order to make sure that he's fit again the week after, it's probably best to just err on the side of caution. I think that's probably what Fulham did. The other big question, striker. I don't think it's a question. I don't think it's a question. I said it last week that I thought Muniz would keep his spot until he did something to warrant not having his spot anymore. Or if Breuer comes off the bench and scores, and then you go, all right, well, you, you did something well. Now you go. There, there's no argument as far as I'm concerned. And But I, it was a remarkable performance. We didn't talk about it. I thought we'd come onto it at this point. Yeah. It was uh, a really, really impressive showing. And look, I've been, I've had questions, big questions, over what Rodrigo Muniz brings to the table and what where the kind of rough edges are and how we can smooth them out. They're still there. Right. This is not a, oh, he's now complete, the complete package. What he is adding to his game is that coaching. You're seeing the improvement in him week on week. And look, we have to bear in mind one, he's still incredibly young. Two, he was pretty much untested when he came to England. Yes, he scored a bicycle kick at the American R, but he hasn't had that many games. And three, there have been injuries that have, have held him back in terms of what we've seen from him. And look, that first good performance against Manchester United ended with ended in tears. We also saw him come off with a little bit of what looked like a strain in this game. So questions on fitness, I suppose, a little yeah. bit. But if he's fit, he starts, as far as I'm concerned. I maintain that I think he still needs a loan next season. And actually, I said last week that I thought maybe a combat, competitive La Liga club would be an interesting space for him to end up. Read, having read a little bit more about this, Marco wanted him to go and learn to Middlesbrough because it was in England to be able to improve the language. And I think actually that's a really sensible point that probably wasn't considered. Well, I wasn't considering when I said he could go to Spain. 
maybe you look at then somewhere like the Eredivisie, where English still is spoken within a group. But actually, if there is a space then to do a top championship club and for someone to challenge for the top, you know, not necessarily the title, but the playoffs with Muniz as a spearhead, I still think a 38, 40 game season in the championship would be would do wonders to just round out those rough edges. But in terms of his hold up play last weekend, in terms of his work rate and effort, which has never really been in doubt, yeah. but it was it was remarkable once again. But just getting in front of his man a little bit more, the desire to to beat his man to that first goal. Oh, it's dreadful defending, don't get me wrong. But the desire to get there is incredible. And then the nous to turn up at the back stick for that second is very, very impressive. There is still something there. I said this last week, I say again, there is still something in there. Whether that's enough to turn him into an out-and-out, very good Premier League number nine, I'm, I'm not sure yet. I'm not a coach. But I think that the raw materials in terms of what he's got going remain in place. They just need rounding out. I honestly, I cannot work out Rodrigo Muniz. I, I cannot work out whether this is going to be a bona fide Premier League star that's going to be scoring goals in the top division for 12 years or whether eventually he's going to end up playing in Serie B. Like I, I, I actually just can't work it out because kind of on... In I think it's, it would be wild to work that out right now. You sign a player like this based on their potential ability, right? You can never see what that potential ability is going to be there. And also, you know, with a player who relies on his physicality and that speed in behind a little bit more, there is an element of being like, oh, okay, what happens if something goes wrong here? And we've had injury issues already, a couple of them, not just one. That's a concern. And I think all of those feed into where his ceiling might be. But yeah, in terms of raw, raw attributes and what he's bringing to the table right now, there's every chance that he goes on to be a perfectly credible Premier League goal scorer, but he needs regular minutes and he needs the rough edges rounding out because there there is still too much that's raw about him for him to be like, okay, cool, you go and start every week next year, next year for Fulham. I don't, I don't think we're at that that point. Now, if he goes and scores 12 goals between here and the end of the season, <laughs> maybe we reassess that question. Yeah. If, if, you know, if Breuer can't get into this team, and Peter mentioned it in his article about Muniz, if we keep if if this keeps tick, ticking along, it keeps happening, and he's keeping Breuer out of the team, that's worth four million on its own, right? Fulham won't be worried about that. They won't be worried about that. Like, oh, we might have to pay. Hell of, because, a, hell of a bar though to have to hit. Basically, he's going to have to keep scoring almost every game in order to keep his place. Well, but also sometimes players rise to that kind of challenge, right? Sometimes they don't, yeah. but sometimes they do. And I don't think it's about scoring. I think it's about performances. Yes. Right, so if you come on and you, you know you're making a difference, even if Fulham lose two 0 at the weekend, and Muniz is, you know, Fulham's best player, holds the ball up well, brings others into play, and does everything right, then I think he keeps the spot. But until there is a performance, or Breuer comes on and is brilliant, mm. that's the that's the only way I see the guard changing. Because why well, you can't, you couldn't drop him after that. No, I, I agree that you can't. I guess the interesting thing, Peter alluded to on last week's podcast, he also, also mentioned it in his Athletic article, we have to pay this money to Chelsea if Breuer doesn't make, reportedly, 10 starts. There are 14 games to go. Again, if if that is the payment that Fulham have to pay to have somehow unlocked Muniz's potential, <laughs> I think they will gladly pay it. Maybe, but that's an exp- it's an expensive one. It is, yeah. I mean, well, I don't think we've got four million plus. Broy is probably very high wages. I don't know, think we're paying all the wages. No, I think we're paying hundred percent of of Broy's of Broy's wages, as far as I I know. So, look, I'm happy for Mooney's. So, basically, we're going with probably mostly the same eleven, actually, despite all the extra. Yeah, I I don't see why there would be all that much change. Again, like, you could bring in Wilson. Wilson Deca- might come in for Deco Devery, but then Bobby scored. Yeah, Bobby's um, done nothing wrong, really. I, I can also, with a week's rest, I think it's important to think about this because when we're talking about Fulham playing Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday, Wednesday, or Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Wednesday, as we have been for the last couple of weeks, you really do need to rotate to try and keep people fresh. With a week's rest between these two games, I don't see it. I don't see why you'd need to. Yeah, no, I, I, I'd be happy if it was just the same starting eleven. So many more reinforcements. I don't think there'll be wholesale changes at the very least. There might be one or two I guess minor changes. Bassi is the one that, like, I guess Bassi maybe maybe Wilson. Of, yeah, because of the physicality of uh, of, of of Villa. So I can't see there being more than two changes. No prediction. 
well, score. I'm going to go two all. And I'd be very happy with that. As long as we don't go 2 nil up and throw it away. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would take an, an entertaining score draw against a very good Villa side. I'd take any sort of draw, I think. I know that sounds a bit weak against a teetering Villa side at home, but I think now we're at a place where we're like, okay, Fulham need what? What are we on, 29? Yeah. So I think Fulham needs seven points to guarantee safety. I think 36 keeps you up. This yeah, season. I agree. So... A point against Villa at home to leave us six points off safety with a fair few of the bottom teams still to play, I think would be great a great return. I think that's fine. And I know people will be going, well, aim higher. I don't think there is... Obviously, you aim to finish as high as you can because every place is worth money. And I get that. But in terms of like where Fulham are and what we're aiming for this season, Fulham are not going to breach these European spots. It's already too far away. Yeah. So the question becomes, get out of trouble, make sure you're out of the vortex, stay away from the relegation scrap as it starts to open up. And right now, I think a point of Villa would move us a step closer. I think there's also, and this is sometimes the perception that, you know, clubs going up the ranks face is that there's still just the, it's Villa element to it like a draw against Villa just always feels a bit ah we can beat Villa it's Villa like we we were in the championship with Villa but they're a very good side they're a very good side now but I think because they you know because they fell from grace I but like it's easy to forget that Villa are probably the third richest side in the Premier League yeah they have invested incredibly heavily in a very good squad they have in my opinion one of the best managers in the game in Unai Emery someone who been banging the drum for years is a far better manager than he's given credit for I think right up there on the in that top pantheon of active managers, to be honest, mm. and have been at one point were challenging for the title and now are very much still in the race for the Champions League. On paper, this bit this Villa side are a better side than we are. So to get a point against them, I think would be a decent return. Yeah. All right, well we'll take another break there. Afterwards we'll get into some of your emails. Part three of the Fulhamish podcast, Sammy here with Jack Collins. Uh, let's get into some of your emails just before we finish today's pod. Should we bring back This Will Catch On next week? I think we should probably bring back This Will Catch On soon. Have we had some submissions? There have been some submissions in the bit in the meantime, but also like we could just say we're bringing it back next week and therefore... So we have a broyer now. Get involved. Yeah, let's, it's been a while. I don't know why we dropped it. It just felt like it felt like the right time, just to give it a little bit of a breather. But it might be time to it might be time to bring it home. I think also because there's no midweek matches for a while. I think when there's a midweek match, it's always a bit like right. We've got to discuss yesterday's game. There's another game to discuss. But we know now for like three or four, well, basically forever, there's no midweek games. Yeah. So. Right, get your submissions back in. We're going. Hello at fullmish.co.uk. Let's do this. We'll catch. I didn't even um, give you a heads up on that. Did no, I? you just I, went for it. I just. I uh, want. I want at least three Broyer submissions before next week. All right. Well, that's. If fun. one of them isn't a rework of Ashkan Dejaga's song, um, what was that to? Uh, Englishman in New York by Sting. <laughs> I, I'll be very upset because that was. Oh, he's Iranian, right? Oh yes, yes. So I mean, oh, he's Albanian. Feels like a really, really easy. Really yeah. easy one. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. Right, let's go into some of your emails then. In the meantime, while we wait for some of your This Will Catch On submissions next week, uh, Tom Elam says, Hi all, not really a proper question, but Marco's team is probably one of the best we've had in a long time. I've always wondered if we had kept Zambo and Grisa to partner Polina midfield, then Anderson at centre-back and Mitro as striker, how much better do you think we would be? A Zambo Polina in the centre midfield would be unstoppable, surely. Thanks for all the content from Tom. I think we win the league. <laughs> Um, no seriously I, I think you're challenging for Europe honestly I think that Anguissa and Pelina in the middle would have been almost uh, as Tom says like, almost un, un, unbreakable or partnership the steel and the silk that, that would be that's just it isn't it I would love that and I'm sure there are people groaning and be like oh geez, we thought we'd had enough of Jack and Anguissa but he has been like, the only bright light in this in a Napoli season that's been dreadful Watching him last year in that Spalletti Napoli decide was pure joy. And to be honest, Chuck Seri in there because that performance <laughs> in the AFCON final was worthy of any pantheon in the world. He was remarkable, absolutely amazing. Yeah, I mean, look, Wood, yeah, Anderson's been excellent. I think if you had an Anderson Bassi partnership, that's pretty rock solid, isn't it? Is there something like my only slight take on Joachim Anderson is sometimes. 
everyone rates Joachim Anderson as a player. He's pretty just solid, isn't he? But like, Palace are really bad this season. Yeah. And I don't think that's on Joachim Anderson, but he also did get relegated with us. After a while, does, does, do you start to like wonder, like maybe are you as effective? I think he might just be being signed by teams who just aren't that good. Oh, yeah, that, there's a chance. There's a chance. I mean, would, let's say that's that really hypothetically here because I don't think they are going down. If Palace did go down, would you take him back? Yeah, I would. Yeah, especially if Tosin leaves. Yeah, hundred percent. I'd be looking at that. Okay. Definitely. Um, I don't think he's the be all and end all, and I do think there are better centre backs out there. But in terms of getting someone who's one comfortable, two known to the fans, and three has that Premier League experience that Marco Silva clearly very much seems to love, I think it would be a relatively easy fit back into the setup. And that's quite a nice thing when you're looking at, you know, someone who's obviously very talented as well. Yeah. Um, David Smith says, Hi, Sammy. At the risk of enraging a large proportion of your listeners, uh-oh, I am wondering after Saturday's performance whether we might be okay up front for the foreseeable future with Moonies and Raul. Could we have our long-term option and highly experienced, competent, older head uh, to help him bed in. I appreciate I might be getting carried away here, but I would be sad to see someone else come in to push Rodrigo back down to third choice striker. Best wishes, David. Yeah, I mean, I think we've addressed this a little bit. I, I still think he needs a loan. And I think by the time he comes back from that loan... So how does next se- Okay, so how does next season look then, presuming that we stay up? You, Rao's still on a contract. Yeah, becomes the second choice that he was supposed to be, the deputy. Okay, and, and we were just saying that Jay Stansfield's a winger. I'm. I don't think Jay Stansfield is ready to play number nine in the Premier League. I, especially if we're not playing a front two. Okay. So I think that Stansfield comes back and gets minutes as an inside forward, which is basically what Fulham play with anyway. So that's okay. We tend to play with wingers who cut in on their stronger foot, right? So it's well, not and, a, and probably um, a sub for someone like. Which, which side would you chance stance? I think he's played mostly on the right when he's played for us. Yeah, I, I, well, it depends in terms of what you're trying to get from him. But yes, I mean, he's comfortable on both feet, which is nice. Yeah. But I think you probably look at him as potentially getting the start on the left. Sorry, on the right. Yeah. And you kind of work from there. But whether that's his best position or not, yet to be seen, I suppose. Um, generally, I, I think, and then I think you sign a... Look, I, I I still think that there's a there's a case to go and sign Evangelist Pavlidis from a premium from striker, basically. But I don't think we're going to get a premium striker. I don't think Fulham are going to go and sign Benjamin Jesko from RB Leipzig. Or, no, but know, I mean, by our standards, a premium yeah, striker. I, I think Fulham go out and spend thirty five million pounds on a striker. Jimenez. Yes, if you could get a Santi Jimenez, you get a Santi Jimenez. Like as simple as that. He's not a. If the option is there to buy that kind of player, I think that's. But that that's does the one. really like if you're Rodrigo Muniz. But and, it means that you come back. So if you get a one year loan and they go, look, Raúl's not got two more years in him. He might, but you know the chances are that Raúl is coming to the wind down stage, right? Yeah, his next move might be back to Mexico or something like that. Yeah, exactly. So if you say, okay. We're getting you out on loan for a year. We want you to come back and challenge for the number nine shirt with a player we're bringing in this summer as Raul departs. I think that's a sensible enough succession plan that I could get behind. By which point, Rodrigo Muniz is 24. Yeah, where you expect him to be coming into the private. If he's not ready to cut it as a number nine at that point, is he going to be? Yeah, I just worry of what that looks like to Rodrigo. I, mean, I guess ultimately we've got to be ruthless here, and it's got to be what's best for no, Fulham no, no, and what's best think, for Rodrigo. I, I don't think that's. I don't think that's a particularly wild thing to suggest to him. To be like, we want you to go out. We want you to play thirty-eight to forty games in the championship at the top of the championship, not struggling at the bottom of it in a team that is pushing for promotion. We want you to show us what you can do there, and we want you to come back and challenge striker that we're going to bring in here for the number two for the number one spot as equals. That's where we're at. I think that's a that's an, a succession plan that you could be like, okay, how do you argue with that? Yeah. And I guess Moon has joined this club knowing Alexander Mitrovic was here. Yeah. And there was no suggestion that he was going to leave at that point either. Yeah. So if, if Mitro was here, would we do that next season? I think we would. I think we'd send Mooney's out. on If Mitro was still here, I think we'd keep Raul as his backup and we'd send Mooney's on a loan next season to try and... Which is why I don't see now Breuer being the striker that we sign in the summer. Well, I, I, I mean... Unless he absolutely turns it on for us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But he's got... The, he, you know, he will get that opportunity to, to play some games, I think. So it's going to be interesting to see how that develops. 
All right, two more questions. This one from Nicholas Spindler. He says, hi, Fulhamish. Long-time listener, first-time question asker. This is nice. what we like. If that's you, you've got a question. Hello at fullermish.co.uk. Get in touch. Listening to the Thursday Club, discussing the conundrum of succession planning and balancing our ability to bring in new players against our spending power is the answer bringing through more academy players. There always seems to be a reason not to blood youngsters in a Premier League team, but bringing through academy talent will help reduce the age of the squad and opens up the potential of if big profit through resale. Otherwise, what's the point of the academy at all? We seem very bad at promoting our youngsters into the first team. Love the pod. Love all you do from Nick. I mean, we've kind of talked about in the past that an academy shouldn't just be judged on how many players it yeah, gets into the first, first team. But I, I guess, Jack, that what's maybe changed since some of those discussions that we had before is that it seems to be now that the only like bona fide way of getting serious funds and it's what sadly our friends up the road have been like cottoning on to for, for a number of years is that selling your academy products at high prices is the best way to kind of get clear funds for profit and sustainability and that's I guess something that Fulham haven't been able to do with our academy talents we've had them come through but we've not been able to sell them at the top whack Sessignon is maybe the exception where we did get some decent money. Yeah, I mean, we have been very bad at selling talented players for the right fees. Um, and part of that is due to contract situations, et cetera, et cetera. And it's hard. It's not easy, especially as a smaller club. I think if you, you know, if you're in the Chelsea Academy and they offer you a contract at a relatively high rate and they go, right, we, we see you as part of the club, then it's one thing even if there's other interest in you, whereas if Fulham are doing that to Harvey or Fabio, then they know that Liverpool are up there sniffing along. It's a little bit different in terms of what you can demand that they do. Yeah, And that's been a really difficult thing for Fulham over the last couple of years. Equally, look at Matt O'Reilly, who is on the you know, verge or at least on the wish lists of Borussia Dortmund and Atletico Madrid, who made a bid in January, who Fulham basically let go for peanuts because Scott Parker wanted to play his brother-in-law in, in the <laughs> middle of the park, which I still believe is almost a war crime. So it is of, one of the worst things that has happened at Fulham it is Scott in the Parker's last ten years. Worst crime, and there were many yeah. <laughs> by a, by by a mile, by the way, because that is just out, and it wasn't like it was a mystery so many people were, were saying that, that this guy was the mustard. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, was, it wasn't mustard. I think the caveat, you know, the other side of that is that we saw Sonny Hilton, for example, as the absolute crown jewel of the academy after Ryan Sessegnon left. He's playing non-league football at Bootle. Uh, after a, you know, it's, no, it's yeah. still an incredibly high level, but it's not where we thought that Sonny Hilton would be after what he produced at youth level. Ollie O'Neill was a crown jewel of the academy that we thought might be able to make the step up. He's just gone to Leighton Orient, where we're yet to see what he's bringing to the table. You know, there are a couple of others. Kieran Bowie's doing well at Northampton Town for a second spell. Obviously, Jay's doing well in the championship. Luke Harris not netted at the weekend for Exeter. There are talented footballers here. They can't all be Premier League level. And, you know, as you alluded to, an academy shouldn't be judged on how many players are into the first team. It's how many players you can get into the Football League pyramid. And because all of those players, one, are worth money to the academy, um, but two, it feeds back into what the academy is worth and therefore why other people want to join it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a bit of a self-sustaining ecosystem if you can continually produce talent that's able to play in the top leagues it doesn't always mean that there are going to be loads. And actually, you look at it, how many, you know, aside from Chelsea, which I think is a particularly special case because of the breadth of what Cobham does, you don't look and see loads and loads of academy graduates making it through into top teams. Crystal Palace are quite good at it, um, credit where it's due. But yeah, even there... Liverpool. Yeah, but Liverpool, well, who was the last player to break through before Conor Bradley? Trent Alexander-Arnold, right? What was that, five years ago? Six? Um... Yeah, maybe it just feels like a very recent bit of pain that um, we they lost their best right back and then suddenly there was this just little dude from the bench that just turned out to be an absolute right, world But beater. Connor Bradley also went out on loan to Bolton and had a very good season where he was player of the year, young player of the year, player's player of the year. You know, 
it's not like he just came from nowhere. He went and had that experience and was very, very good in League One at the time. So it's United bring through quite a lot. United are very good at it. Um, but we are. But we are. I guess we've got to remember we aren't Liverpool, Chelsea, and United. Yeah, and Carrington is an incredibly powerful youth academy. Maybe diluted a little bit now by what City have brought to the table, but for years Carrington took all of the best talent from you know the northwest and above. Liverpool able to push more into Merseyside and Wales, obviously, but. That's something that you, you kind of look at. But the catchment areas are so much bigger and the academies are so much bigger than what Fulham are working with. And I think given and relative to our size, the academy is doing a very, very good job in terms of what we're bringing through. But I think it would be unfair to expect it to be bringing through a player of Cessnion or Carvalho's quality every, every so often. And actually what we've brought through in the last couple of years in terms of these players, you know, Harvey Elliott, Ryan Cessnion, Fabio Carvalho, okay, right, they're not all currently quite cutting it at the top level, but all made those big moves and all were players who have had an impact for either Fulham or once they've moved on. That's a pretty good strike rate from where I'm seeing. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think, like, it's just we need to, but going forward, see a little bit more fruits from it, either in terms of players or in terms of big fees that can then yeah, be Yeah, we invested. need to be able to... But also you look at someone like Mika Biereth, who went off to Arsenal and is knocking on the door of that first team squad. That was very little in terms of transfer because it was so young, but also someone that Arteta really likes and have spoken to people at Arsenal who think that Arteta thinks he's got a, you know, a potential absolute gem here. Someone that Fulham will never be given the credit for. The flip side of this, I suppose, is like Elijah Adebayo, who is leading mm. the line and scoring goals in the Premier League for Luton. Is Adebayo good enough to play for Fulham? Probably this season. Would you have taken him at the start of last? No. no. So there is an element of that, but even that should be seen as success, success for the academy. And we're seeing, you know, Marshall Goddard out on, the mo- on, on loan at the moment. We're seeing Jay Stansfield, as we said. There are still fruits out there that I think have need to be given time to grow and ripen in order to see what we can actually fundamentally get. But the long-term contracts for Jay... Luke in particular, I think are signs that maybe things are starting to change. Yeah. And that was obviously some of the mistakes that were made with Carvalho and Elliot was probably not offering them big enough things before they'd gone. Before they broke through. Yeah. Because at that point, it doesn't, at that point, the offers are starting to come in, whether you like it or not. If they're on a five year deal, Mm. then obviously Fulham can demand, even if the player wants to leave, they can demand fees for them. And it's important to make sure those things are in the, in the right space. And I'm confident, like, when it comes to the academy, look, there's some parts of Fulham that, like, aren't perfectly run. But I, I do think that we are learning and getting better and improving all the time. And I'm hopeful that with one of this kind of crop that we've got, you know, your Godos, your Stansfields, one of them's either going to hit for us as a big first-team player. And sadly, that might mean then they'll hit by getting us... 50 million, which will actually be sad the day that happens because it will mean that we've lost a great player to a big club. But I think what was so galling with Carvalho was the way that we lost such a great player for minimal money. Yes. That we could reinvest. To a team that he didn't really fit, which was frustrating in terms of his development as well. Because, you know, much as it's frustrating to lose a player like that, I always want to go and see them go on and do well. I want Fabio to succeed. And what we've seen so far and look it's been better at Hull and I'm delighted for him under you know Liam Rossinho which is a cool one to have in the tank as well and someone that you know Marco Silva won't be here forever mm. I think it's important to kind of keep an eye on ex-Fulham players doing well elsewhere and Liam Rossinho is very much one of those who's doing a good job at Hull now I'm not saying that's the answer or that we're going to do that but it's worth just bearing in mind a little bit I think so yeah, yeah um, that's a nice little fruitful relationship and Hopefully Fabio can start to rebuild now because it hasn't been great. And if we uh, get Liam Rossini, can we bring um, Jaden Philogene just because finally we'll get a player that can actually do a good Rabona? Oh, mate, it's unbelievable. That goal went down as an own goal. It's a scandal. It's, it's, it's absolutely scandalous. It's illegal. I'm, I'm so upset. <laughs> I actually just wanted to go and throw a petrol bomb through the EFL this morning. I was right. so angry. It was it was so illegal that that, game got, that goal got given as an own goal. I saw it and I was like, are they taking the mick? I just saw this goal from Jaden Philogene. 
I'm pretty sure he was Philogene Bedace when he was playing us the last time, by the way. He's lost a bit of his name. He um, was absolutely mustered against us in the summer series. Yeah, I mean, really good player for Villa. And I, I said it to a couple of Villa fans last night. They were like, just bring him back. He's ready. And I was like, I'm not I sure could, about I that, was amazed but... they let him go permanently when they did because I was like, that lad can play. You've just mentioned it, though. PSR rules, homegrown players. Cameron Archer to Sheffield United, same thing. Couldn't believe Villa let him go. I think he's a serious player there. But in terms of balancing their books off the offsets they're doing and the big players they're trying to bring in, it all makes sense. Yeah. Uh, final question from John Paul Little. Hey guys, discovered the pod a month ago and love it. As an American who started following Fulham in 2016, I just missed the Dempsey years. Can you explain what he meant to slash for the squad? Well, we'll talk about his first spell at Fulham, not the second one. Yeah, never go back, people. <laughs> never go back. Yeah, never, never um, read up or watch the uh, the second Dempsey spell at Fulham. But I think it was an interesting one, Clint, because like the highlight reel at Fulham is so amazing. He reached the fifty Premier League goals for us, and he was a serious player. But to say it was all like sunshine and roses when Clint he started Dempsey... really badly. Yeah, and I think actually it's kind of part of the mythos around Clint Dempsey. It's important to kind of recall that at first you were like, what on earth have we done here? Like, he was just step overs, wasn't he? He Nothing just else. did step overs and didn't, didn't do anything with the ball. It was like a really low grade version of like Ronaldo's early spell at Man United where he just didn't pass the ball and just tried to beat players, but just Dempsey wasn't as good at it. And so lost the ball an incredible amount. And then suddenly, I just feel like at some point it just clicked and off he went and suddenly he was scoring big goals. A massive goal for him against Liverpool in the season that Fulham ended up staying up. Yeah. But it looked very, very risky for a while. And he scored a huge goal against Liverpool at the Cottage. And from then on, it was like, oh, cool. He's got a really regular goal scorer on hands. I suppose the other thing was that he was quite versatile. And he wasn't the same kind of player as Bobby Deckard over. I was just thinking Bobby Deckard over. He actually, he was the player, I say this about Bobby a lot. He's the player you want the ball to fall to in the box with a chance, with a half chance. He's the player you want one-on-one with the goalkeeper and he can play in about six or seven different positions. Now, Clint didn't play right back at any point in his career, <laughs> but he did play as a number nine, as a number 10 and on both flanks. And at, at points in a further back kind of right midfield role and even centre midfield at times, he did do a lot of different things and he did a lot of different things very well by the end of his Fulham career. There were links away, perm, you know, constantly towards the latter years. He was constantly linked with Liverpool and eventually signed for Spurs, scored a couple of very important goals for Spurs, but wasn't very good in general. Um, but I think that what he brought and that work rate and that desire to turn it round from quite a poor start all meant that the fan base warmed to him so much. And yeah, I think Colt Hero would be doing him a disservice. I think he's just genuinely a hero of those Fulham Premier League years. And obviously then the Juve goal is the cherry on the top of all of that icing. I think the Decadova Reed comparison though actually explains some of Dempsey's struggle is that being a versatile player can sometimes actually be a detriment to your chances of starting. And obviously... Dempsey famously didn't start some of those games in the Europa League run. That's when he punched the window at the cottage and broke his hand and all of all sorts. And he was very frustrated. I think that he, until the very last couple of years, like he sometimes struggled to exactly hold down his position in the starting 11. He was often seen as, oh yeah, Dempsey could come off the bench. Oh, Dempsey could maybe fill in for that person there. I think that was sometimes his detriment at Fulham was his versatility. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Absolutely. But um, very much a player that I have nothing but fond memories of. Even the early struggles, I think back of with, with a smile because you're just going, what is this geezer doing? What's this geezer up to? Why does he keep doing stepovers? He's not that good at stepovers. <laughs> I think Dempsey's also one of those players that had Dempsey had a better footballing start in life, could have been... If Dempsey was born now with the soccer setup that's in the US, yeah, 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 like he I mean, obviously he was uh, one of the most naturally gifted players I've ever seen. I, I think he also, you know, played for the the MLS All Stars against Fulham early on, didn't he? And yeah, it was a game we lost, I think, um, but I think he scored a goal. I think he could have gone a lot further in the game and in European football if he'd have had a better start. But sadly, because I think because of 
you know, he was a late bloomer. He came to Europe quite late. I think Fulham was really the kind of top level he was ever able to reach. But I think the natural ability was there to go to somewhere like a Spurs. Yeah, and- I think he should. He, he could have had a real, real top level career. And um, we're, you know, blessed in some ways that actually what that allowed was us to witness a lot of magic from his boots um, at the cottage. And he, he fitted in. Clint Dempsey's a funny character as well. It's worth bearing in mind. And, you know, all the stuff about fishing and his bizarre rap career that went along for a while. And his hatred of Dixon and Suhu. It was just all very mad, right? And he was just a bit of like a figure where you're like, well, you did, like you're just doing about everything. And it was like a big, obviously a big soccer hero in the States. But also at the same time, everyone was about like, this guy's kind of weird. Yeah. And even now his media appearances and stuff, he's just like, I'm chilling. It's all good. I'm just happy just doing my fishing. And you're a bit like, this is not what footballers are often like. So I think actually in some ways we suited him. We were a quirky little club on the Thames for a quirky geezer from the States with the American connection already. It all just fitted into place. And I think if you, if if you gave that time to Clint again, knowing what he knows now, I don't think he would have left Fulham. Oh, I no. think he would have stayed and saw out his career here and been, you know, maybe gone back to the Sounders in the end. Fine. He obviously had an incredibly fun end of career in MLS. But I think maybe that period where he went to Spurs and came back, I think he would have ended up staying. And I think if he had done that, he would have gone down as one of Fulham's greatest ever. I think it was eating it away inside of him, though, of getting that big club. And yeah, just yeah, yeah, 100%. And, and just, I don't blame him whatsoever. And just getting a taste for it. Yeah, yeah. In the end, the taste was all right. Yeah, it wasn't that sweet. It wasn't that sweet. But I think it was it was eating away at him, especially that season where he did eventually, I think he scored nearly 20 goals yeah, yeah, yeah. in the season. Like he really was one of the best players in the league that year. And, yeah. and I think he deserved his move, but I think ultimately it was all just a little bit too late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If he'd got the original Liverpool move, which happened, I think, two years before he eventually went to Spurs, we might have had a bona fide superstar on our hands at that point. Yeah. Well, um, I think Clint Dempsey, actually, I was thinking earlier of like, oh, we should do some more Fulham folklore podcasts in the, uh, in the summer. I think a full episode on Clint Dempsey actually could, I be, would love uh, that. could be fully justified. Right. That'll do for the podcast today. Thank you ever so much for listening. Jack, thank you for being here. Thank you, Sammy. Always a pleasure. Uh, the, the podcast will return on Sunday uh, Jack you're going to be hosting yeah um, hosted by uh, yours truly sorry about that in advance uh, post Villa and then we'll be back this time next week to look ahead to our trip to Old Trafford uh, to face Man United in the Prem yes we have beaten them in the Premier League before right uh, that'll do for today Jack thank you thank you Zoe Jack is going to be hosting on Sunday. Yeah, post, apologies in advance uh, I promise to try and not make any poo titles in there uh, I, look it's up to you as long as Farrell isn't this isn't on secretarial duties I think we'll be alright <laughs> uh, so that will be uh, the podcast post Villa and then myself and Jack maybe Peter haven't asked uh, will look ahead to Manchester United this time next week thanks for listening Come on you whites you whites